0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at
1: Bethelpbc.us.
0: Hebrews 9.23 It was therefore necessary, says the Apostle Paul, that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, that is, with the Blood of goats and calves, but the heavenly things themselves, the reality, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year, with the blood of others. For then, Must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world? But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered. To bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation." We're in the main section of the epistle to the Hebrews, and the theme of this section in chapters 9 and 10 is the superiority of the new covenant to the old. It's better. That's one of the key words you'll remember in this book. It's superior. The new covenant, what we have today is better than what they had in former times. And the apostle has been reminding his readers in this chapter of a scene which would have been very familiar to them, The old Jewish tabernacle, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, as they journeyed through the wilderness, they had this tent of meeting that God had given to them as the place of worship. It was a symbol of his presence in the midst of the camp. And particularly on the most important day of the year, that is the Day of Atonement, the service that would take place in that tabernacle in which the high priest would enter behind the thick veil into the holy of holies and offer sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. That was the highest holiday or holy day in the Jewish religious year. And what the writer is doing in this chapter is he's talking about the offering of the blood of bulls and goats on the day of atonement and the tabernacle and all of its figurative imagery. What he's doing is he's comparing and contrasting that Old Testament scene with the reality to which the rich symbolism of that service pointed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now I wonder if when I read this passage if you notice the verb to appear three times in this reading. Three appearings of Christ. You'll see it in verse 24 Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. What is Jesus doing right now? He's appearing. He's making an appearance in the presence of God for us right now at 1114 a.m. On this sixth day of March in the year of our Lord, 2022, at this very instant, Jesus Christ is on the job as our great high priest in heaven now appearing in the presence of God for us. Sometimes I hear people say the Bible's not relevant. It's not up to the minute. Well, you can't get any more relevant than this word now. That's pretty contemporary, isn't it? Right now, Jesus Christ is pleading your case before the Father in heaven. Isn't that wonderful to think about? It's not that he just offered a sacrifice as your priest 2,000 years ago and then forgot about you. But he has entered into heaven itself at this very moment to make an appearance in the very presence of God on your behalf. Then verse 26. Now once in the end of the world, hath he appeared. Notice the past tense. Jesus has appeared in history. And that's speaking of the incarnation. When he assumed a body and came to this earth and went to the cross. When he was 33 and one half years of age, Jesus appeared to put away sin. So here's his past appearance in history. Here's his present appearance right now in the presence of God. And then you'll notice this verb to appear again in verse 28 when he says unto them that look for him, shall he appear? That's future tense, isn't it? He shall appear. This is coming the second time without sin unto salvation. The three appearings of Christ. Now, when he mentions these three appearings, it's reminiscent of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. You know, the high priest would first appear in the presence of all the people and make the offering. He would slay the bullock for the burnt offering. He would slay the goat for the sin offering. And he would do that on the brazen altar where people could watch. He appeared to put away sin, if you please. He he made a sacrifice. Then he went into the most holy place and appeared in the presence of God. But you know, every Israelite waited with abated breath for the priest to come out of the temple when the sacrifice had been accepted. They wanted to see him come back and make a return appearance after the sacrifice had been accepted. And that's the imagery that the apostle now is drawing from when he says, Our great high priest has appeared to make a sin offering. And he's gone into heaven itself now, obscured from us by a veil, if you please. We can't see him with our natural eyes, but he's now appearing in the presence of God. But my beloved, we are waiting with abated breath, are we not, for him to appear the second time without sin unto salvation. What beautiful imagery is here. Now, there are two main thoughts that are developed in the book of Hebrews. If you were to ask me, Brother Mike, can you summarize the teaching of this book in just very brief terms? I would say the book of Hebrews teaches us about God's revelation and God's redemption, revelation, redemption. You see it in chapter one, the prologue, God spake by his son. That's revelation. He has spoken. God has spoken. Sometimes people say, I just wish God would speak so I would know what he thinks. My beloved, he has spoken once and for all. He's given us a full and final revelation in the 66 books that we know is the Holy Bible. And God, if he could speak to us audibly today, would not say anything more or less than what he's already said in his word. This word is a thorough furnisher unto all good works. It is sufficient. I believe in the sufficiency of scripture. Everything we need to know that pertains to life and godliness has been revealed to us in the holy scriptures. God has spoken by his son. But not only revelation, but the book of Hebrews talks about redemption, as you see in the next verse in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that Again, introduction to the book sort of sets the pace for the development of these two themes in the 13 chapters that remain in, that we know as the book of Hebrews, Revelation and redemption. And the context in Hebrews 9, as he now comes to deal very particularly with the theme of redemption, he's talking about blood redemption. Last week, we discussed the fact that sin is such a capital offense against the holiness of God, that a bloodless offering will not satisfy it. And we mentioned Cain and Abel. Do you remember Cain brought his vegetables? But Abel brought a blood sacrifice, a lamb, the firstling of his flock. And God had respect to Abel in his offering, but not unto Cain in his offering. For Hebrews 11 is going to tell us that Abel, by faith, offered his offering. That is, he offered it consistent with God's revealed will. And how did Abel know that God required a blood sacrifice? Because when God clothed his parents in the Garden of Eden after their sin, he slew an animal to put animal skins upon them, right? So you see how that Abel understood the significance of a blood sacrifice, but Cain brought the labor of his own hands. He brought a bloodless offering. My beloved, may I say that although it sounds gory and unsophisticated to our sense and sensibilities, to our modern sanitized way of thinking. It's not politically correct. Yet if we take the blood out of the gospel, we've taken the good news out of the gospel. Blood redemption. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what verse 22 in this chapter says. No remission of sins. And you may remember the night before he was crucified, Jesus took a cup of wine and he said to his disciples, this is my blood in the new covenant, in the new Testament, the blood of the covenant, which is shed for many for the remission or forgiveness of sins. That's Matthew 26, 28. Jesus says this cup represents the real and final sacrifice for sins, the one that will actually do more than just Cleanse the outside, but it will cleanse the heart. Yes, my beloved, Hebrews chapter 9 is developing this thought of blood redemption. So the question that we ask today is what did the sacrifice of Jesus Christ accomplish? Have you ever wondered that? What really was Jesus doing on the cross? What did the cross achieve? And this passage this morning gives us a threefold answer to that and want to develop these three points first of all it expiated sin that is it removed sin once and for all listen to verse 26 nor yet says verse 25 that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others you know if the law was still being observed today we do know based on daniel chapter 9 that the sacrifice in the temple ceased in Daniel's 70th week, you know. That prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks, he says, then the sacrifice and oblation will cease. And after 70 AD, there has not been a regular sacrifice offered in the Jewish tabernacle or temple. Somebody says, well, Brother Mike, if it hadn't have ceased, what would be happening today? every Saturday, Sabbath, and then every day of atonement in the year, they would have to make this sacrifice again and again and again because sin would have never been dealt with completely and ultimately. But Jesus didn't have to offer himself often as the high priest who entered in to the holy place every year, that is, continuously, with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. Now, I want to say that the sufferings of Jesus were so horrific that I'm so glad he's not being spat upon and beaten and flogged and shamed and ridiculed. I'm so thankful that today that he doesn't have to suffer anymore. Have you ever noticed, dear friends, sometimes you'll see a crucifix with the picture of Jesus still on the cross. I'm glad to tell you today he's not still on a cross. Our Savior is alive from the dead, and he doesn't need to be sacrificed every Sunday over and over again. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world. And that word once in Hebrews, again, I stress means once for all time. But now once in the end of the world. I want you to notice, dear friends, But this phrase, in the end of the world, indicates that his first appearance closed the period of symbolism and expectation, and it marked the beginning of the age of reality in the history of redemption. When he says in the end of the world, he means in the end of the law world. Jesus Christ appeared. And what did he accomplish? Well, he accomplished eternal redemption. Now, he's already said that back in the 12th verse of this chapter. By his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. That is, he went into the presence of God in heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, that's such clear language, you'd have to have help to misunderstand it. (laughs) Somebody says, when Jesus died on the cross, he made salvation possible. I want to say today, I'm not a possibilitarian. (laughs) I believe that we have an actual, not a potential savior. Jesus did not merely make sinners savable if they will add something to it by accepting or believing or making a decision. He didn't merely make men redeemable. When he died on the cross, he didn't merely make it possible for sinners to save themselves by repentance. Jesus Christ actually procured, he actually secured salvation He redeemed, He reconciled, He justified. He came to save His people from their sins, and He did it. I believe, my beloved, in an actual, not merely a potential salvation. Jesus Christ obtained, past tense, eternal redemption for us. And He did it at the end of the period of symbolism and expectation, marking the beginning again of a new age. And this is the very reason that he came into this world. You know, if we're going to answer the question, what did the death of Jesus accomplish? We need to first answer the question, why did he come into this world? What was the purpose of his appearance onto the stage of history? And there are so many verses in the New Testament that tell us why he came. First Timothy 1.15 says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Every Christian ought to be able to accept this. We ought to all agree. It's a... Faithful saying. That means it's an axiomatic truth. It's a Christian maxim. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? Why did he come? To save sinners. Paul adds, of whom I am chief. I like the way he thinks. Why did Jesus come? He came to save sinners, even the worst of the bunch. My beloved, there's hope for me if Jesus came to save sinners. Isn't there for you? Somebody says, I thought Jesus came into this world to make the world a better place to live. Well, how's that working out for you? This world is still a veil of tears, isn't it? This world is still a a spiritual minefield and battleground. This world, my beloved, is under the sway of the rulers of the darkness of this world. The God of this world, that is, the one who's calling the shots in secular society in many respects. Now, that doesn't mean he's sovereign. God overrules all. He's almighty over all. But the God of this world, may I say, is blinding minds right and left. He is certainly active in his deceptive efforts. No, Jesus didn't come merely to make this life a paradise, do you know what he came to do? He came to save us from the consequences of sin so that we might one day enjoy a world where righteousness permeates every molecule of that world. That's what 2 Peter chapter 3 says it's a new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, would you say righteousness dwells in this world? No, my beloved. Wrongness, not rightness, seems to be on the throne in many respects in this world. But I'm telling you this morning that the reason he came is not to make the world a better place to live. He came to save sinners. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Why did Jesus come? You say, I thought he came to make a name for himself. No, he didn't come to make a name for himself. He didn't come to make his mark on history. He didn't come to make the world a better place to live. He didn't come so that you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise. He came to save He came for one purpose and one purpose only to rescue his loved ones from the consequences of their sins. I'm so glad, my beloved, to tell you today that he finished the work. You know, the heart of the gospel, the triumphant note of the gospel is the finished work of Jesus Christ. John 1930 says he cried with a loud voice, you know, he made seven statements on the cross The seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. That's an interesting study. But number seven says he cried with a loud voice. It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Somebody says, oh, he whispered and said, it's finished, meaning it's curtains for me. I'm beaten. I've finally been defeated. No, he didn't whisper that. He cried with a loud voice. This is not a whisper of defeat. It's a shout of triumph. And as we said recently, it's a single word in the Greek. Petelestai, which is one of the most interesting words in the Bible. It comes from the root word teleo, which means, listen, to make an end, to accomplish the goal, to complete a task, to perfect, to pay in full. To execute fully, to finish completely. I like that, don't you? When Jesus said it's finished, what did He mean? He meant I've accomplished the goal. I've completed the task. I've perfected forever. I've paid in full. You know, if you get a note in the mail from the bank that says paid in full, stamped paid in full, you don't owe anything else on that, do you? It's paid in full. Did you know Jesus did not just make A down payment on your salvation, my beloved. He paid it in full. His precious blood was the redeeming cost or price that was paid. And my beloved, it was sufficient to secure expiation on behalf of all that he represented and to remove divine wrath against our sins. Interestingly, this word teleo is the same word translated performed in Luke 239. When Jesus said it is finished, that word finished is translated performed in Luke 2.39. It's the same word translated accomplished in Luke 12.50, Luke 18.31, and John 19.28. Accomplished. What did he mean when he said it is finished? He meant it's performed. It's accomplished. It's the same word translated fulfilled in Galatians 5.16. He meant it's fulfilled. Same word used in Revelation 15.1, translated filled up. You know, sometimes in our modern world, you'll go to a restaurant and they'll, say, they'll have a little line on the cup that says full to here. You know, I think Dairy Queen used to have those cups. You ever seen them? Full to here. And I thought, why are they redefining what the word full means? You know, full to here. It's not full to here. That's two thirds full. You know, fill it to the brim. That's filled up. I'm telling you, when Jesus said it's fulfilled, he didn't mean I've filled it two thirds of the way. I'm telling you, it's full to the brim. He's filled it up. That's the same word translated finished in John 19:30. The word is used and translated by the English word expired in Revelation 20, verse seven. By the word paid in Romans 13, verse six. By the word, the end, in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 1 Peter 5, 11, meaning the outcome. When Jesus said it is finished, he means the outcome has been met. The goal has been achieved. The task has been completed. The debt has been fully paid. It's the same word, teleo, translated finally, in 1 Peter 3, 8. When Peter says finally, he's saying teleo, that is, this is the end. And it's the same word translated perfected in the next chapter, Hebrews 10.14, when he says, by one offering, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's the word "telestai" or teleo, which means perfected. The Greek scholar Spiros Zodiati says the word teleo signifies this idea. To carry through, to complete, to reach the goal. It speaks of the termination of a purpose. My beloved, it doesn't sound like Jesus just made a stab at saving or that he just tried to save or hoped to save or wished that he could have done a better job, but he's going to try again to do the second time what he couldn't quite get done the first time. I'm telling you, he said it's finished. What did the death of Jesus Christ accomplish? Verse 26 in our text says that it expiated our sins once and for all time. So why did he come into this world? He came to save sinners. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Why did he come? Not to be served. He didn't come like royalty, saying, please bow and kiss my ring. He didn't say, please roll out the red carpet for me. I'm a celebrity. He didn't come to be ministered unto. He came to serve. He came to minister. The Lord of glory came to earth, my beloved, to serve Poor, unworthy sinners like us to do for us what we could never have done for ourselves. To do for us what the high priest never could quite get accomplished for the children of Israel under the old law, because the sacrifice he made could never make perfect the sinner. I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus made perfect. That better sacrifice achieved perfection. Why did he come? To minister and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom. Now, when do you pay a ransom? You pay a ransom when someone has been apprehended, someone has been kidnapped. Somebody says, I've read the ransom note. The ransom they've asked for is this much money. So we're going to pay the ransom to secure the release of the prisoner. I'm telling you, my friends, you and I were prisoners in the pit of depravity. We were in bondage to our sin nature. We were in bondage to the wrath of God. We were under the penal sanctions of God's holy law. But Jesus Christ has liberated us. He secured our emancipation from that bondage. He's paid the ransom. He came to give His life. To give His life. Not to take out His wallet and to pull out a large bill or a gold coin from it. He came to give the ultimate price. His shed blood for you and for me to give his life a ransom for many. Galatians 4.4 4 says, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. So at the moment when the time was right, God dispatched his son from heaven for what purpose? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption. Why did Jesus come? Why would he come? Why would he leave the glories of that pure world and set foot on this vain and transitory world where you and I live? You say, this world is all that there is. Perish the thought. There's a far better place. There's a happy land far, far above. And Jesus left all of that. He took off the robes of his heavenly dignity and he donned the garments of our depravity. He came from the portals of eternal splendor into the aromas of a barn and ox stall at his birth. Why would he do that? Out of the ivory palaces, he stepped into this world of sin and misery and despair. Why? For one purpose and one purpose only, he came to save sinners. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's why he came. You see, we can't really answer the question, did he achieve his objective until we know why he came. And then the question that we ask is, did he achieve that objective? Did he accomplish the intended objective? John one twenty nine. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God! which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus came, my beloved, to put away sins, is our text. Sometimes people say, Brother Mike, I just don't understand the Bible. Well, do you understand this? He came to put away sin. What does it mean to put something away? What does it mean to take away something? It means to put it away, to take it away. That's not hard to understand. You have to have help to misunderstand. Oh, my beloved, may I say Jesus Christ came to take away the sin's Of His people, He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The good news of the Gospel is to tell us that He accomplished it. He finished it. He did it. He's a successful Savior. You know, I'm so glad I don't have to preach a Savior who tried, but He failed. What good news would there be in that? So many preachers today preach that Jesus made salvation possible, but many for whom He died because they fail to cooperate with it, will finally be banished to hell and Jesus will be heartbroken forever. I'm telling you, my friends, Jesus saw His seed, Isaiah 53 says, and was satisfied. He's not heartbroken. He's not disappointed. He did not fail. Neither was He discouraged. My beloved, if you have a better message than this, you can have the pulpit this morning. This is the Gospel. This is the only good news for poor sinners. That Jesus Christ accomplished expiation. He redeemed his people by the shedding of his own precious blood. Secondly, what did the death of Christ accomplish? Verse 24 says it opened the way into the presence of God. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. So we've talked about his appearance in the end of the world. He appeared on the stage of history at the conclusion of the old covenant. He came to fulfill it and to inaugurate a new covenant By putting away the sins of his people. He did that. That's what his death accomplished. His death also accomplished this. Verse 24. It opened the way into the presence of God. He's entered, it says, into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. I want to say the priestly function of Jesus did not conclude with his sacrifice on Calvary. If you study priests in the Bible, they do two things. A priest does two things. He makes sacrifice and he makes intercession. The priest slays the animal and offers the blood, but he also prays for the people and represents them to God. You know, a prophet represented God to the people. A prophet said, thus saith the Lord. He's speaking on behalf of God. A prophet represented God to man, but a priest represented the people to God. And in order to represent them, first he must make a sacrifice and then he must pray. And I want to say this. A priest always prays for the same people for whom he made sacrifice. The Jewish priest did not make sacrifice for the Jews and then pray for the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Hittites and the Philistines. He made sacrifice for the covenant people of God and then he prayed for the covenant people of God. That's why in John 17, when Jesus says, I pray not for the world, but for them which Thou hast given Me. Notice He's interceding for a specific, definite group of people. It's the same people that He had given eternal life to, that He had died to save through His sacrifice. He's now interceding for them. Very important point. I'm telling you today, my beloved, that Jesus continues His priestly ministry even today, even now, in heaven as the intercessor of His covenant people. He now appears, it says, in the presence of God. And here are two little words that are not hard to understand. For us. Five letters. Two single syllable words. Monosyllabic words. For us. Why did Jesus die on the cross? For us. Why is he in heaven praying? And for whom is he praying right now? For us. For us. Who's the us? all that were loved by God before time began, and represented by Him on the cross. Jesus Christ for us has made sacrifice. This is the great doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The great doctrine of substitution. You say, I don't know that I agree that one man can do something and others get the benefit or get the blame for it. You're telling me, preacher, that Adam sinned and I get the blame for it? That just doesn't seem fair. Well, we have some representatives in Raleigh on the state level, right? And then in Washington on the federal level who uh, speak on our behalf. And when they make a decision, do you know what? It affects us, right? They represent us, whether we like it or not. I'm telling you, dear friends, in the same way, when Adam sinned, you and I sinned in him. We fell in him. And when Jesus Christ, the second Adam, Died on Calvary's cross. He died in the place of His covenant people. He died for us. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Christ has once suffered for sins. Notice, the just for the unjust. Now who's the just in that verse? Jesus is. He's the only righteous man who's ever lived. He's Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the just one. And He died for, or in the place of, and for the benefit of, the unjust, that is, you and me. When Jesus stepped from the ivory palaces of heaven's pure world into this low ground of sin and sorrow, he did it, my friends, for you and for me. And through his substitution, acting as our federal head, as our representative, as our locum tenants, the Lord Jesus Christ has released you and me from obligation to God's holy law He has entered now into the presence of God for us. I love that doctrine. If you want to read a chapter in the Bible that is probably the clearest chapter on the doctrine of substitution, anywhere in Scripture, read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. What a glorious chapter. It speaks of the sufferings of Christ. It says, we esteemed him smitten, stricken of God and afflicted. Here's what people thought. They thought he was being punished by God. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. This is what we thought. We thought God was upset with him, but that's not the case at all. Here's the truth of the matter. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That's substitution. That's substitution. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he that condemneth? Now, this is one of these hypothetical questions that the apostle just sort of throws out there in a challenge, a universal challenge, saying, Do I have any takers? You know, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Somebody answer. If, you, if there's anybody here, raise your hand. Who is he that condemneth? Who shall separate us? He closes Romans 8 with these taunting questions, as it were, saying, Show yourself, answer, if you will. Who is he that condemneth? Who could possibly condemn one of God's little ones? He says, for it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who also maketh intercession for us, for us, who is even at the right hand of God. He's in the very presence of God today. And because he is there, we too have access into the holy of holies. Now, this is the most amazing thought yet. For the thing that we want the most and need the most is to be in the presence of god but see god is so holy that a sinner cannot possibly enter his presence the children of israel kept their distance didn't they the priest went in to represent them but they could not see what happened in fact they had to stand afar off and then he came out to tell them whether or not god had accepted the offering Do you remember at Mount Sinai, the terrors of that mountain as it shook and quaked and the lightnings and the thunders were there and the people drew back and said, Moses, you talk to us, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. If so much as a beast were to brush up against that mountain, it was to be thrust through with a dart that is killed with an arrow. God, my beloved, is infinitely holy and different from us. Now, we like to try to bring him down to our level, but the God of the Bible is completely other. You know, the word holy, the Hebrew word Kadesh comes from the root, which means to cut. Sometimes we speak of somebody and say he's a cut above the rest, right? He's separate. He's different from others. Well, I'm telling you, God is the ultimate different one. He's the ultimate other one. He is eternal, we're temporal. He's pure, we are sinful and vile. He is unchangeable, we are mutable. He is good, and we are evil. He is truth, and all men are liars. God is so different than us. Even though there are things about man that are hints of the nature, the ontology of God, We shouldn't ever think of God as being like us. There are parts of us that are like Him, but He's not like us. And my friends, the thing that I want the most and the thing that He wants the most for me and for you is to be in His presence. That's what we really need is to be in the presence of God. But how can we? That's the ultimate conundrum. That's the ultimate dilemma. How can a lowly mortal... Born an earthling, formed of clay. Seek to praise the Lord Jehovah who turns the night today. How can such a one of Adam, long estranged from God above, hope to find His blessed favor and hope to know His blessed love? For His eye is far too pure than to look upon this sinful frame. His own perfect being never can accept my sin and shame. The end. Let's go home. No, I'm glad I don't have to end the sermon there. But oh, listen, do you hear it? Tune your ear, friend. Can you hear it? Can you hear the glad new song? It is telling how the Savior has been sent to claim His own. That's the gospel message. We need to get into the presence of God, but we can't. And may I say this, God is not only committed to forgiving your sins and to cleansing your hearts that he wants you to be with him forever and that's what he has secured when he arranged for his son to take your place and to die to open the way to give you access you know I've driven down the interstate before and I've seen on the off-ramp this big sign that says no access or I've driven up to a elaborate facility maybe an an industry of some sort and seen on the Chain link fence with the wire on top of it, the sign that says no access, employees only. You know, public is not allowed. You can't go in there. You can't get in there. I'm telling you, my beloved, that there was a big sign between sinners and a holy God that said no access until Jesus has burst through that sign and he's gone into the presence of God. And the next chapter in Hebrews, and I'm not going to develop this thought any further because I will undermine a sermon in the near future, is going to develop this thought even further of how you and I can come into the very Holy of Holies today. Now, I am just little Mike Goins, just a common, ordinary Joe. That's me, and that's you too. We fancy ourselves as being indomitable, invincible, you know, eternal, immutable. That's not us. We're we're changing creatures. Shadows of our former self, right? Weak, vulnerable, needy. That's what we are. My beloved God has made provision for me to spend eternity with Him and to be in His very presence. Amazing. And coming to the house of God today, you've come awfully close to the presence of Jesus Christ through the blood of the Lamb. We are in His presence today. And I'm not afraid. Are you? Not afraid. You say, you should be. Well, if I'm looking at the law, I should be. But if I'm thinking of the gospel, I'm so glad I don't have to live under the law. Do and live the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly, then it gives me wings. I believe, my friends, Jesus Christ has accomplished something so much better for us. And then He secured our safety from final judgment. And the clock beat me. And this is the main point i thought three points i'll be able to get this sermon done in 35 minutes and spend the bulk of my time on the last point judgment day is coming and have you ever had somebody say that one day you'll have to stand there and everybody in the universe will get to watch your whole life on a panoramic screen every thought you've ever had every bad thing you've ever done every good thing you've it'll all be displayed for all to see is that true will that happen No, my friends, there will be no hint that you were ever a sinner on judgment day. Judgment's coming after you die. You say, oh, death is what I fear. I just don't want to die. Well, it gets worse as it is appointed on men once to die. It gets worse. After that, the judgment, you've got to appear before God. I'm so glad he doesn't put a period there and say, "Okay, let's go home. He says, so Christ, that little monosyllable so means for this purpose, Because judgment day is coming, that's the reason Christ was once offered. To bear the sins of many. Their judgment has already been. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. That high priest is coming back. The second time without sin unto salvation. The subject of the final judgment is very important. And we'll try to give some time to that, the Lord willing, next time. It's a rich passage, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 9, it tells us that Jesus Christ accomplished Everything he intended to accomplish when he died on Calvary's Hill.
1: And pride, not my Lord was not it was for me. Give to Jesus everything.